0: From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we
1: hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. Jesuit priest and academic legal expert Frank Brennan has a long history on Indigenous issues, advocating for rights, reconciliation and recognition in the Constitution. It's not always made him popular, however. Paul Keating, for instance, once called him the Meddling Priest, Most recently, Brennan was a member of the group appointed by the coalition government and chaired by Marcia Langton and Tom Kelmer, which produced the report on the voice to parliament that's often referred to by Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. Now Brennan has entered the referendum debate with a new book that seeks what he calls a constitutional bridge. Brennan is cautious and concerned about the breadth and implications of the proposed wording of the referendum question, and he puts forward alternative wording that would narrow it. The Albanese wording proposes the voice to be both to parliament and to the executive government. The Brennan wording would remove the reference to executive government. Brennan says this would get around the risk of the voice leading to multiple court challenges. Frank Brennan joins us today. Frank Brennan, can you begin by reading your proposed wording for the question and can you elaborate on why you think this change in the proposed wording is needed?
0: My proposed wording is there shall be an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice with such structure and functions as the Parliament deems necessary to facilitate consultation prior to the making of special laws with respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and with such other functions as the Parliament determines. I think that what I'm putting forward is true to the first recommendation of the Referendum Council. But most significantly, I think it avoids possible legal doubt and ambiguity, which is contained particularly in the second sentence of what Prime Minister Albanese proposed at Gama, namely the extension of the capacity to make representations to the Parliament on all manner of things, and to executive government on all manner of things. I would still see a place for a constitutional voice making those additional representations, but I have a problem about it being made a constitutional entitlement in every case, and I think that could be problematic.
1: So this means that the voice would be, according to the constitution, able to make representations to the parliament, but would it not be able to make representations to the executive?
0: Well, I think it would. It would depend on what Parliament determined by legislation in setting up the voice, Michelle. See, this is the critical point, that where you have a capacity for a constitutional entity to make representations to executive government, you've got to remember that that's not just a capacity to make representations to ministers, it's a capacity to make representations to public servants. And it's not just a capacity to make representations to public servants about matters of policy, it's a capacity to make representations to public servants about administrative decisions, which may in any way affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Well, that covers a vast panoply of administrative decisions by the public service so the question then becomes would you want any judicial review of the failure of public servants to give adequate attention to representations to be governed by just the usual statutory law and the usual mode of high court interpretation or do you want to elevate it to the basis where the new constitutional entity, namely the voice, is given a constitutional entitlement to make representations to public servants? If so, what would the High Court say would be the responsibility, the constitutional duty of public servants in receiving those representations? And furthermore, would there even be an expectation by the High Court, that public servants would give formal notice to the voice that they were thinking of making a decision about something so that the constitutional entitlement to make representations might then come into effect. This is a whole new territory.
1: Now, constitutional experts seem really divided about this issue of uh, the prospect of a lawyer's picnic, as it were, and you're in the class of people who say, well, that's a real problem, but you had a, a former chief of the High Court, Robert French, who seemed not concerned about this at all. What's your basis for worry, and why is this diversity of opinion among the experts?
0: My worry is not so much where do I line up in terms of the legal differences between Justice French and Justice Hain and Justice Callanan, to name three of the retired High Court judges who have already bought into the debate mine is more a political concern michelle and the one who schooled me in all of this was one bob ellicott who of course was the most successful attorney general in australian history in getting up three of the eight successful referendums in australian history and bob always said the first rule for getting a referendum up is that you cannot have any legal doubt in what is being proposed. Now, I think everyone needs to concede wherever they line up, whether with French at one end or Callanan at the other end or Hayne in the middle. You just have to concede that when you're trying to run a referendum And in the very early stages, we've already got three retired high court judges out of the starting blocks, taking very different positions, that that then makes it very difficult to be able to have a referendum campaign where you should be able to say, well, there's no legal doubts about the proposition. Let's just argue the merits of the policy. So that's my really significant concern.
1: Now, you stress in your book the need for the voice to have sufficient Indigenous support, but do you think your narrowed question could in fact command that level of support?
0: I think it could. I hope it will. Uh, I have to say that having written the book as I have, Michelle, I only wrote it and have only published these views having reached with moral certainty the view that the Gama formula that was announced by the Prime Minister will not fly. I don't see that there is any prospect that it will win in a referendum precisely because of these doubts and uncertainties that have already arisen. And so, of course, there's no point in going for recognition of anything other than what Indigenous people themselves would want, especially that which is expressed through their voices, of their leadership. But what we've got to remember is what my amendment is putting is not only the specific constitutional function, it's not only putting the voice as a constitutional entity into the Constitution, if I might adopt Noel Pearson's phrase, it creates the hook, but then on the hook, Parliament is then free to add further things, namely the capacity of the voice to give representations to parliament on all manner of laws and the capacity of the voice to make representations to executive government, including ministers and public servants on all manner of things which affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. So the question, the prudential question for the Indigenous leadership is going to be if we trim back the GAMA formula to what was accurately put forward by the referendum council in 2017, namely a voice to parliament where its primary function would be monitoring laws made under sections 51, 26 and 122 of the constitution. If we do that, As was put forward in that recommendation and as was then enunciated by Murray Gleeson, who'd been Chief Justice of Australia and who'd sat on that referendum council, would that be sufficient for our Indigenous leadership? That remains the open question.
1: Now, you also indicate that to be successful, the referendum needs bipartisan support. But is it realistic to think that Peter Dutton would eventually give that support, given that um, really the uh, Liberal Party is probably overwhelmingly against the voice, despite some loud supporters of it uh, within that party?
0: Well, I operate on this premise that I think... Mr Dutton, he's a leader of the opposition. He's got only one shot in the barrel at trying to become prime minister. And I think if he reads the mood of the Australian community, particularly young people accurately, he'll find that there is considerable public sympathy for a voice. Now, in terms of the philosophical basis of the Liberal Party, I suggest that my amendment plays to two strengths of the Liberal Party philosophy. The first part is about consultation in relation to special laws applying to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. I would have thought the Liberal Party of all parties would concede in the 21st century, if you're going to maintain a constitutional head of power, that the Commonwealth Parliament has power to make laws with respect to the people of a particular race for whom it's deemed necessary to make special laws, that at the very least you should consult with that group. The second thing which I think should appeal to the Liberal Party is that it is being stated that any additional functions to be given to the voice would be at the whim of the Parliament by legislation in setting up something like an ATSIC or whatever with the amendments that might be needed to be made over time. I would have thought both of those principles should appeal to the Liberal Party. Perhaps to put it another way, If the Liberal Party were to find this sort of amendment unacceptable, then yes, at least we'll have flushed them out that what we have is a major political party in 21st century Australia who sees no place whatever for the recognition of Indigenous Australians in terms that Indigenous Australians have sought and in terms that even people like Murray Gleeson on the Referendum Council thought to be appropriate. And that would show that the Liberal Party has gone very significantly off centre in terms of dealing with this issue.
1: A lot of the argument at the moment is about this question of whether we need more detail about what the voice would look like, the architecture of the voice. How much more detail do you think the government does need to give and on what aspects of it?
0: If the government were to stick with the Albanese type Gama formula, then I think they would need to give a considerable added amount of detail, if only to be able to satisfy people that you don't have to be too worried about the capacity of a constitutional entity to have a constitutional entitlement to make representations. An example I gave earlier today. Uh, everyone's concerned about the cost of living at the moment. The Reserve Bank makes significant decisions on those matters. The Reserve Bank is governed by the Reserve Bank Act. Those who make those decisions are public officials. It could be argued that under Section 75.5 of our Constitution, if the voice was given a constitutional entitlement to make representations on any matters relevant to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, why wouldn't they be entitled constitutionally to make representations to the Reserve Bank? Why then couldn't they go before the High Court and say, well, if we are to make representations which make any sense, we first of all need to be in receipt of some information from the bank as to what is being contemplated. And if we don't get it, then we would be entitled to an interim injunction to arrest those public officials from performing that function until the matter has been adequately resolved with the representations. But If you went with something like the sort of amendment that I have suggested, I think the need for further detail subsides considerably because the key constitutional function is one that could be easily agreed upon, that of course you'd have a parliamentary committee for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, and alongside that would be the voice, which would be consulted when Parliament on those rare occasions was going to make special laws applying to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Any additional functions, Michelle, would be granted by statute and it would be in the formulation of the statute, as for example when ATSIC was drawn up, that you'd have the parliamentary debate that unfolds, which allows the yielding of further detail. So I think the detail issue becomes a furphy if you get the right words for what the constitutional formula should be.
1: Now, you suggest that uh, regional and local voices are vital. How would they work in relation to the national voice? And what's your understanding of the government's position on those voices?
0: To answer the second, I have no understanding of what the government's position is on those voices, because as you know, and as your listeners know, the way the government has decided to do this is with a series of confidential discussions going on with a key group of Indigenous leaders who have been appointed by the government. And that's the government's prerogative. But it does mean that those of us who are outside that tent don't know the detail of that. But suffice to say, when it comes to looking at the credibility of a national voice, I know from having been on the Langton Karma Committee that the key Indigenous leaders and people like Marcia Langton and Noel Pearson were all there at the table in those deliberations. They see it as absolutely essential that there be an intricate set of local and regional ears to pick up those local and regional voices, which would then be fed into the national voice. As I understand it, they would see the national voice as some sort of clearinghouse or a funnel where you'd then be able to call, or they would call together, those with the expertise in the Indigenous service delivery organisations. Because remember, we do know that the Indigenous leadership that's been meeting with government has been insistent that they do not want the voice to be involved with service delivery or allocation of resources. That being the case, they know they need local and regional ears which can be responsive to those which actually are the service providers in those local and regional communities.
1: Well, talking about the Indigenous leaders, how do you think they're handling this debate, in particular people like Noel Pearson, with whom you've had an up and down relationship over the years?
0: Well, yes, Noel and I have known each other for 30 or 40 years, and you're dead right. We have had an up and down relationship, uh, but we have the maturity to be able to deal with that in the public square, which is a good thing. And no one could but be moved by seeing him on the ABC 730 report basically putting his heart and soul into this and saying, if we don't get this, then there's no point in pursuing public life any further. So it's a very demanding thing for those Indigenous leaders, particularly those like Noel. But let's bear in mind, as Noel said in his first Boyer lecture, we know the nation's leader must be joined by all his counterparties in the federal parliament. We know we've got to get a formula that can win bipartisan support. And if we don't do that, yes, people's hopes are going to be dashed. I don't in any way envy Indigenous leaders like Noel Pearson at this time, where they have to try and hold together the ideal of what they think might be achievable in terms of the Uluru Statement, together with the pragmatism of what is required to win the necessary support. But I would say this fearlessly, it's that if you go back to the recommendation, the first recommendation of the Referendum Council, of which Noel was a member, it unequivocally spoke of a voice to Parliament full stop. The word executive government does not appear in the Referendum Council report. And what we've had, unfortunately, is that Albanese lifted a submission, which Noel and Megan Davis and Pat Anderson had put into a parliamentary inquiry in November 2018. But they put it in two months late, and they put it in at a time... When those who chaired that committee, Pat Dodson and Julie and Lisa, and its members, including Linda Burney and Malarindiri McCarthy, who are now the minister and the assistant minister, said, this needs a lot more work done on it. And so what we've got, unfortunately, Michelle, is because government decided not to proceed after election with the setting up of a parliamentary committee process or with a constitutional convention which would be the normal thing but with the prime minister having done this captain's pick i think it has put these indigenous leaders into a very invidious position and so it's a very difficult time for them as we try to work through and find something which might be acceptable
1: Well, Noel Pearson has suggested that if the referendum fails, then reconciliation would be dead. Do you take such a pessimistic view?
0: I don't. But then again, I mean, I've been around the reconciliation issue for so long. Uh, Let's think back to, you know, when Robert Tickner set up the Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation. And we had 10 years with Pat Dodson as the father of reconciliation. We had those great scenes in Parliament where both sides came together to agree on the establishment of a Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation. We then had more than a decade that followed that council where we had Reconciliation Australia, which fed into corporate Australia and many groups around the community drawing up reconciliation action plans and things of that sort. A lot of the discussion at the moment goes on, Michelle, as if the Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation never existed, as if you never had Reconciliation Australia. What I find in the community is there is a far more profound understanding and appreciation of Indigenous heritage, culture, and tradition in our society now. And I think particularly among young people, much more yearning to find an expression of that, And that's why, I mean, if this referendum falls over, it'll depend why it fell over. But if it's fallen over because of overreach and inadequate process, that'll be the problem. I always go back to what Paul Keating said, Uh, Michelle. You'll remember it during the um, Mabo debate. Keating had one line. He said, look, good policy will be good politics. And in this debate, I add a further line. I say good process will yield good policy which will then produce good politics which in time will produce a good popular outcome but if we don't get the process right if we don't get the policy right if we don't get the wording right then we'll be forfeiting an enormous opportunity for national reconciliation
1: Well, just finally, you mentioned this long history of reconciliation and this greater appreciation of Indigenous heritage and culture. But what hasn't matched any of that is the practical on the ground situation. Progress has been at best limited and disappointing. What actual difference do you believe the voice would make at the practical level I think that's a question that many people would be wanting an answer to
0: yes I think it's a complex question I mean first of all I think it is too simplistic to say there's been no progress limited I mean, progress what Limited progress, but where we have seen extraordinary progress is the very significant number of Australians who now, for the first time, identify with their Indigenous heritage and proudly do so. For the first time, seeing an emerging Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander middle class, you might say, those who have got the professional qualifications, those who are in positions of significant influence, I mean, if you'd said to me 20 years ago, there'd be 11 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander persons representing us in the federal parliament, I'd have said you were mad. So there have been those sorts of advances. But yes, in terms of delivery on the ground of services and maintaining basic peace and security, particularly in remote communities, I think where the voice might make a difference is if it is seen to be something which has the strong, overwhelming support of the Australian community, that here is an organ of Indigenous Australia, which has credibility and standing at the table in Parliament with the legislators, that then when it comes to considering how we might work together in resolving these things, that there is a parity. That there is a true equality of a meeting of those Indigenous leaders with the leaders of the community. As Noel Pearson put it there on the 730 report, holding his hands up alongside each other, that it's got to be in partnership. I think working again for that partnership, which in part we did have in the early days of ATSIC, I think would be a good thing.
1: Frank Brennan, thank you very much for talking with us today and teasing out some of the complex issues around The Voice. That's all for this podcast. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevere. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.